This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Good evening, Cherries fans, and welcome to this very, very special show here on Up the Cherries in All Departments. Now, I do have a special guest. He does have links to West Ham. He's also a gold medalist hurdler. He was at the Olympic Games in Los Angeles, and his final Olympic Games was in Barcelona in 1992, in quite a historic race. He was also star of Record Breakers and has also been on shows like They Think It's All Over, The Big Breakfast and A Question of Sport. It is a pleasure to welcome on to Up the Cherries in All Departments, Chris Akabusi. Welcome to Up the Cherries in All Departments, Chris. How are you doing, mate? Craig, really, really well. Uh, happy to be on your show. I can't believe the Premier League season is just around the corner. And of course, Saturday... You and I, Bournemouth from West Ham, date with destiny. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And it's going to be an exciting game. West Ham have finally done some business in the transfer window. Um, and of course, we're signing players left, right and centre, aren't we? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think you guys can be a lot more excited than we are because you've done a bit of business early. You've got your manager in early. Yeah. Um, I, I mean... I don't know, maybe we'll talk about, I don't know why you got rid of Gary O'Neill's, you know, as an outsider, and I know nothing about the machinations of Bournemouth, as an outsider, what a job he did with you guys last year. You know, for me as an outsider, you guys were nailed on to go down for such a long time, and all of a sudden he grabbed you boys up, and very impressive back end of the season. Not so much by the time we got down to see you. Um, I don't know, it, it, you know, our game against you and I was there, Seemed yeah. to be like a blip because when I was there and I was watching the game, I thought, is this the same Bournemouth that I saw three weeks ago? I think you had a go at Leeds, you know, had a go at a big club as well, you know, top six yeah. club. Is that the same Bournemouth? Because you was an empty shell. But that sounds negative. So impressed with how you guys finished that season. And I thought, Gary O'Neill, what a player. He's picked up and from an assistant coaching role, he's now picked a mental. That guy's got a career ahead of Bournemouth, right club, right time, right place. Watch him go. 
and all of us. And you gave him a contract, didn't you? You guys gave yep, him a contract. Yeah. You gave him a, a contract. And this man, I hear, sacked. So I, I'm like, maybe you can tell us about it. Because as an outsider, who's not intimately involved with Bournemouth, it, it was one of those moments. Or I, I had a few splinters in my fingers. To be honest, it was a complete shock to me that it actually happened. Um, and I think Gary O'Neill did a fantastic job here. Yeah. You think of where Scott Parker left us yes. and that 9-0 defeat against Liverpool. And then he picked us up off the ground. Um, you know, a 0-0 draw against Wolves might not be the most exciting of games, but at the same time, that's something to build on. And between that Liverpool defeat and also the Southampton defeat, which I believe, if I remember correctly, was about October time. Yeah. Every other team in the Premier League had been beaten. So he did a remarkable job. Yes, a lot of fans do turn around and say, yeah, he wasn't particularly good after the World Cup. And I think that's true. I think that's fair. But at the same time, there was a lot of injuries as well yeah. to the side. And, um, you know, Gary O'Neill, what's your memories, Chris, of Gary playing in a West Ham shirt? Um, so... so Happy with him. There was Gary. Gary came with um, the two guys he played for Pompey. Yeah, Gary O'Neill and and anyway, hard working professional who left you all out on the pitch. A little bit slow, so he wasn't blessed with speed, but great position awareness. Uh, wasn't scared to put his foot in, and you, you knew he was always going to play for us. He always plays seven, eight out of ten. You, know, you, 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 you got the best out of him most games. So, um, fun memories, fun memories of you know, because at that time we were quite a, a hard-working team. wasn't blessed with a, an abundance of talent, but he was right for us at that time. You know, we were we were sort of scrapping, trying to keep out of the relegation positions, and he was he came at the right time. Yeah, I liked him. Yeah, most definitely. And hopefully, fingers crossed, he's a massive success at Wolves. I'm sure he will be because he has got that tenacity. I, I've been lucky enough to meet him in person. And he's very analytical, very astute with what he says. If one team does this, we do that. And I'm sure he'll be a, he'll be a success at Wolves. Um, well, what I like about him as well is, was, I mean, when he jumped into your place and you, you guys are down in the dumps, and nobody, nobody outside of Bournemouth gave you much of a hope. He wasn't scared to tackle the job, and it was quite clear that he believed in your team. Yeah, and he got his team believing in themselves and himself, and and the mentality that you had. You were scared of nobody, and mm -hmm. I think you'll do exactly that. He's gone into Wolves. There's a little bit of a cloud over Wolves. They haven't got any money. They've been hemorrhaging players. They're looking at one of our players, Cresswell, who's right at the end of his career. Uh, and for and for Gary to go in there, says, again, he's not scared of doing Rodney's and going in and doing the hard yards. And I love that. He's backing himself and he'll back the players and make them feel good about themselves. So, yeah, like you, I really hope that he keeps Walls out of the relegation and has another fine season. Yeah, I'm sure he will do as well. And, you know, the, the good thing is with Gary is he showed what he was as a player in that dressing room after that 9-0 defeat because Scott Parker had basically thrown those players under the bus. Yeah. And we had a lot of youngsters. 
and he picked them off the ground and got them playing and got them believing in themselves. And, yeah. you know, that is really, um, we'll lead on to what you do now, Chris, but that's yeah. a lot of what you do um, in your day-to-day -day life now, don't you? Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a motivational speaker, do corporate events up and down the country. I've been doing it for the last 30 years. Uh, so clearly the, the clientele... Uh, and demographic in my market, they, they they appreciate what I do. But it is it, it is about instilling a can-do attitude, um, recognizing that you know we all rely on each other. You know we're in the arena on our own, but we cannot do it alone. So you know you, in football teams, you've got you over your stars, but your stars can't do it unless you've got your guys that are all in it doing their bit. And Gary epitomised that when he was with us as a player, I'm sure he was exactly the same as a coach. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, there's so many, there's, there are so many similarities. If rules to the game, there is a final whistle. Um, it's not over until it's over. You know, making the most of every scenario, seeing the bright side of everything. There's so many, so many things that you can talk about that relate to football and sport. And often, when football teams are going down the pan is because mm -hmm. precisely the opposite is happening. You've got prima donna attitudes. You've got people who are not wanting to do more than their assigned role. Um, people who are thinking they're bigger than everybody else. Um, people who are throwing in the towel when they get one or two. Because like, when you guys got tanked by Liverpool 9-0, yeah. it's clear at some point everybody was looking for somebody else to blame and nobody wanted the ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's when you when, when he said, she said, and anybody and somebody and anybody, nobody's doing it in the end. Yeah, whereas you need people to take their own personal responsibility and be there to back you up while you're delivering yours. So it's not it's not rocket science. You'll get it, but you'll understand it. So yeah, so I, I speak on those sort of issues when I'm at corporate conferences. Definitely, I and mean, like you say, never gave up, especially in that game against Spurs. Um, you know, it was two all. And with the last kick of the game, Matara put in the back of the net. And that wouldn't have happened under Scott Parker, it feels. Yeah, it's, it's really funny while you're talking about Scott Parker, because when, when Scott Parker played for West Ham, he was a Rolls-Royce of a player. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant player. Again, somebody you could rely on, calm head. When there was trouble on the pitch, he wanted a ball. Give me the ball. And he'd wriggle out of spaces and then find a space, a play in a space and the right place to deliver the ball. So I was quite surprised to see Scott, and I wouldn't want to speak bad about Scott, but to see him get so negative, you know, I mean, I hope you get, you know, Bournemouth, Bournemouth as a club, is a, again, as an outsider, small family club that punches... If I say above its weight, I, 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 don't, I don't want to be rude, but but, but I always see Bournemouth as a team. They scrap and they punch up. They're going to give you a hard time. And if mm -hmm. you if you go to Bournemouth and you are at 90%, they're going to clean your clock. For Bournemouth, you've got to respect Bournemouth and be 100% in your game, and then you can beat them because generally you go to Bournemouth and man for man, you've got just that little bit better of a resource, but but the, the the temper and I hope I'm not being but but the temperament 
and the guile and the hard work Bournemouth have make up for any difference you may have in that sheer skill. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Completely and so I'm with, 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 with Scott, because knowing that, then you, you've really got to instill in a Bournemouth playing staff that that's your USP. And we never give up. And we're scrappers. And people hate it when they come to our small little Dean Court where, where, where the crowd are on top of you and you've only got 25,000, 30,000 people in your crowd, but they're all on top of you. And you've got your guy banging your drum and you're singing your cherry songs. You know, and it's an ugly place to go because those sort of grounds are few and far between. Do you know what I mean? So I'm really surprised that he didn't utilise that and say, we are the cherries. Mm. And so I was reasonable because that's not a Scott Parker that I grew up watching at West Ham. And I think that's one thing that you put based on there is that we are in a small ground. It's intimidating and yes. you should play up to that because it's something that, you know, is different to what yes. Premier League players are used to. Yes, yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, it's a sort of ground... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an old man now. So the, the, the grounds that we used to go to in the 70s, in the 70s, were like your stadium. Yeah. So we were used to it then. West Ham, the chicken run, no, you know, the, the, the fans from the chicken run could spit on the players. So not that you were not, not advocating spitting, but you know, <laughs> you, you know, you could smell the breath of the fans. You could, you could feel the energy and the anger of the fans. And you didn't want to run down on that side if you were an away fan. Well, Bournemouth is reminiscent of that. Whereas today, like London Stadium, we're a million miles away, up in the theatre seats. And, it's, you know, you, you could be watching on TV, you know, so far yeah, away. Exactly. So you, the atmosphere is very different. You go to Old Trafford, you go to um, Newcastle, the Gallagher, and, you, you know, you can see... You, 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 City, the, the um, city ground, oh, is it called a city ground? Man City Stadium. Um, but you know, uh, yeah, 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 the, yeah, the great big bowls now, you know, mm. completely different experience. So, yeah, that's that's a USP that you guys have got that you could still leverage. I've seen some great, I've seen some great games though down there watching you, watching us with you lot. Well, you did touch on there the chicken run at West Ham, and of course. A West Ham fan from birth. How did the affiliation start with the club? So I was a glory hunter initially, and um, used to follow Liverpool because in the sixties, mm -hmm. Liverpool was the club. Liverpool was just an amazing club. Mm -hmm. Stevie Highway, Kevin Keegan, Ron Yates, Lawler in goal, uh, just great. And then Keegan and and Emily Hughes and all that. Stuff. But anyway, I, I digress. And then in the World Cup, obviously in '66, yep. Bobby Moore, Peters, Jeff Hurst came on the radar, and then a couple of years later, um, I went to on holiday, Clacton. I was, I was in the children's home, didn't have a lot of money. Went to a caravan park and chalets. We had chalets in the children's home, and there was a guy there called Terry Fag, and Terry Fag was part of the East End Greece West Ham fan through and through, young kid. Uh, and we went to his um, um, uh, caravan and in West Ham, all memorabilia, flags, pictures. And in the middle of the picture was a guy called Clyde Best. And Clyde Best and Eddie Coco were two black players that played for West Ham. And whereas now every club will have half a dozen playing staff that are, you know, of, 
African Caribbean origin. Um, back then, nobody. And I saw that and, oh my gosh, you know, black guys can play football. This is going to sound ridiculous, Craig, but when I was a kid, people said black kids can't play football because they're temperamental and they don't like it when it's cold. And so you began to buy into that. And then when I saw, when I saw um, Kylie Best and Eddie Coker, I started following the results and then got an invite down there. And back in the day, turnstiles, they'd open the turnstiles half an hour early, but then 10 minutes after the kickoff, all the people, the staff on the, the, the turnstiles would just walk away. And so you could sneak in. And so I was sneaking the North Bank. You'd go in the North Bank and you'd watch, watch the games and then all stand in. And when there was a goal or some sort of issue, everyone gets chopped down the front. And then you've got the great big East End dockers with the meat cleaver hands grabbing you because you're a young kid. And then they're getting tumbled and they bring you back up here. Hello, mate. Boom. And all of a sudden you become part of the family. You know, they recognise this little school, little kid is bunking in and you come here. So, boom, with their great big leather coats on and stuff. And so that was it. You, 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 you died in. And so from late 60s, early 70s, West Ham through and through, I lived in Enfield. I should be a Dirty Spurs fan. But I hopped over the other side of the, of the River Lee, went down to see West Ham on a regular basis until I joined the army in 75. And that's it. You know, once, like, I, mean, I don't know. Craig, I don't know how you became a Cherries fan, but once you're in, you're in, right? Yes, most definitely. Most yeah. definitely. And uh, a lot of people will know my story. And again, it's quite a unique story about when I moved down here and the club was on its knees and it was struggling. And eventually the club built themselves up to the position we are today, which is remarkable. Never back then would you ever imagine on minus 17 that we would be in the Premier League. Yeah. To be honest, if anybody said that back then, you know, when we were bottom of the Football League, well, second bottom from the Football League, um, on minus 17 points, everybody would have said he was crazy to think that we'd be here. To say that we'd still have a football club, you know, yeah. a lot of people at that time would have said, nah, they're not surviving. The bailiffs are there every single week. So it's a remarkable story. Do you guys have collection buckets as well? You know, community people will throw money in buckets to try to yeah. save. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing because you, you, when you go down the South Coast, I mean, I used to live in the South Coast, actually. I used to live in Southampton when I was an athlete. And the Saints was the, the big club yeah. in the sort of 70s and 80s. But prior to that, that then, Pompey were the big club. So in the 60s, Pompey would have become, I know they had a revival in the sort of noughties where they spent a lot of money, you know, and Harry was down at Pompey and they won the FA Cup. But Pompey was, Pompey was the club, in my head at least, in the 60s and 70s. Pompey was the club. Then they went out. But Bournemouth and Brighton, not really. Brighton, see, there's, there's four of you. There's, there's, there's Brighton, Pompey, Saints and Bournemouth. And you all seem to have your day in the sun where one of you guys is representing the South in the Premier League or the First Division or whatever it is and the rest are sort of in the first, you know, second or third division. But Bournemouth has traditionally been the least likely club in my 60 years to have been in that Premier League position. Yeah. Out of the four. Mm. You know, Saints more often than not, Brighton, Pompey, and then you've got 
Little old Bournemouth. They're not be little old Bournemouth, really. <laughs> yeah. not, you're, not, you're not. You're not. So please don't kick me in the goalies. Um, <laughs> I think you're the sort of, again, Bournemouth is the sort of club, I don't know if it's made, where everyone wants to do well once we've had a go at beating you. And we don't beat you often. So so okay. so West Ham, we always have our game against you, you, you guys. But Bournemouth is the sort of club who you want to do well once you've got your points of Bournemouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. What was your early days like growing up in London? Uh, so, so I mean, I, I sort of intimated earlier on. I, I was born and bred in the children's home. Uh, mm-hmm. No, I'm you, I wasn't born and bred in the I was born in Paddington. What's going on there? Hey, hey the covers are coming for me. The covers are coming for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you, Greg? They're coming for you. They are. I don't know what that is, but outside, you know, <laughs> every now and again, we hear them fly by. It's just like... Okay, okay. <laughs> you, you, you've got this idea, Bournemouth, it's you know, lots of people who, who are in the latter years of life go there to retire, sunshine, beaches, rock, businesses, lots of businesses yeah. in, in Bournemouth, but lovely. And all of a sudden, they hear... I hear the jam sandwich flying past. Funny, funny, funny. Does make some, some, some. But you was just saying, yeah, yeah. So I was born in London. My parents would come from Nigeria. Born in London, they went back to Nigeria. Ended up in the children's home uh, after a series of foster parents. Went to a children's home. I was a bit of a naughty lad, not because I was a bad lad, but because easily led, and you know, just trying to work myself out. I had a good time in London. I, I, I really enjoyed London. But leaving the children's home at six enough and joining the army really was my saving grace. I could have gone in the wrong direction if I had left the children's home and had to fend for myself. So I love London. Uh, my roots are from London. I don't live in London any longer. I'm up near Woburn, which is 45 miles north. But yeah, I, I do resonate very well with London and I like London. It's a great place to go to and it's a great place to leave. And of course, you mentioned as well earlier on that you joined the military. Firstly, what tempted you? How did you join the military firstly? And secondly, that the time in the forces, it actually helped you become the athlete that you was later to become. Yeah, 100% Craig. So... I left school with no I left school with no qualifications. Um, had a bad reputation for being disruptive influence. And then, when I left school, what I hadn't bought into is that I wasn't just leaving school. I was leaving the children's home. I'd been in a home for ten years. So I was quite institutionalised. And then they told me, "Well, you've got to leave now. You're sixteen and a half. I was going to get a bed sit." Who's going to live in sort of Edmonton or, or, or Tottenham? I had to go and find a job, and I was I was very immature. I'm still immature now as a 16, 16 year old. But I was really immature, and I was absolutely petrified. The realization, all that kid who was bravado, bravado, and, and getting the scraps and being chucked out of class and getting the cane and and you know, absolutely petrified about to take care of myself. So it was easy. One of the uncles, you just call them uncles, one of the guys looked after the children's home, he had been in the army, he said, you can do a lot worse than being in the army. So we, we, we went to the careers office. Um, I wanted to be 
a data telegraphist, couldn't spell it, but that's information transfer in the Royal Signals. No, 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 mate. You need to join the pioneers or the infantry. No, no, I want to do a data telegraphy. All right. So they sent me off to have a go. And I don't know why, but I did well enough to pass, join the army. And I remember that day going up there and the sharp major shouting at us. So the 800 people on the parade and half of us were not good enough to be here. And the next eight weeks, his job was to weed out those guys who weren't good enough. And that was the very first time that I made a decision for myself to stick at something. Worked hard, kept my nose clean. Eight weeks later, I passed out on a basic training, or 28 weeks later, sorry, passed out on a, on, on a basic training parade and went on to be a data telegraphist. And I met there a guy called Sartre McKenzie. And Sartre McKenzie was a drill sergeant, chief sergeant, an, Af an army athletic officer. And he saw my talent. He said he believed in me. He invited me around to his home. He bought me my athletic spikes. He, he developed the training program. He put me into some races and began to record my performances. So much so that when I used to come into the guard room, come past the guard room, all my performances would be there. Akabu's the army flyer. Akabu's the again. Akabu's the Northeast champion. And all of a sudden, I began to believe in myself. Dedication, discipline, hard work. At the end of the year, I was the army junior champion. And I was on my way. So, you know, it, it was one of those sliding door moments. Hmm. Sot McKenzie saw something in me said, I believe in you, but didn't just say it, he took all these steps. And that's really, really important. There's, talk is cheap. Mm -hmm. Is your talk matched up with your walk? Do you do the things that communicate to the individual that you're there for him or her each and every step of the way? And, and once that was embedded in me, because I was only with something against it for nine months, but then I, then I, I caught the bug. I bought into it. And then when I went to Germany, so my trade training, I found an athletics club, worked with him, and then I began to climb the GB rankings. Yeah. And five years later, I was in the Olympic Games winning the silver medal. And and yeah, 19, 1984, wasn't it? The Olympics in Los Angeles. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, the silver. And that was in the 400 metres relay. Um, yes. That build up to the Olympic Games. How, for somebody who, you know, I, I've never raced, you know, in my life, you know, I've never done like athletics myself, um, apart from at school, which I was quite good at, but never really got, you know, the, I never really pushed myself further in that. But what was the build up? How many stages did you have to go through to get a position at the Olympic Games? Well, that's a good question, really. So, what you say, so, The reason I'm pausing is this, because everything we talked about is mm -hmm. part and parcel of the build-up to the Olympic Games in 84. Yeah. So Sam McKenzie saw my talent in 76. Yeah. I then went to Germany in 77. I had a five-year training Germany training, training program in, in Germany. And then in 82, in 1982, so 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 I, when I trained in Germany, I got to I don't want to be too statistical, but I got to a level at 48.2 seconds for the flat 400, which was half decent national standard, but mm -hmm. nowhere near good enough. So it got me into the UK top 50. But how did I go from the UK top 50 to the UK top 10? Because it's only when you're in the UK top 10, you get invited to 
you know, go to GB camps. And the way that I did it is in 82, there was a guy called Todd Bennett who trained with a guy called Mike Smith. Mm-hmm. And Mike Smith was given a speech about world-class training performances. I went up to see Mike Smith and said, I want to join your group. And he's like, okay, yeah, great. I was in older job. He said, we train in Southampton. And then he left. Now, the reason that's important, because Mike Smith, he said, we train in Southampton. And he wanted to see if I would have the ingenuity to find out where that group was training and get my backside down there. So was I a self, did I have any self-initiative? And that's really important. That's one of the stages. Is, is, is that you don't want it all on your plate. You've got to have some self-initiative. So I found out where to go. And the reason I wanted to do that group because there's a guy called Todd Bennett was there, Donna Maui was there, and these were inter- current internationals. And so basically I found my way from Aldershot to Southampton, which doesn't sound very far now, now, but back then was a real long way for me. It was like a 50-mile trip, and I had to find my own transportation and get down there. And then I joined in the training group, so that was part and parcel of the journey. And by being in that world-class group, initially, when you're training with them, you're 10 minutes behind, but you learn you learn the skills and the tricks that those guys do. And then the next trick was, okay, training with that group was to go to the UK Championships. And the mm-hmm. UK Championships is where you go to compete against the best in the country. Well, in 1993, I went there and I became UK champion in my very first race. So that was the steps to get there. And then when you're there, finally I'll get there, Craig. Then when you're there, you've got to get used to training. So racing at yeah. that level of performance. Because, you know, it's one thing running in the in the county championships and being the best at that level. But when you get to the national level, you've got everybody who's as good as you are, and you've got different protocols um, required to perform at that level. So your warm-up might be an hour and a half before you race, because then you're in call-up areas, you're showing your spikes and your bits. You've got to deal with that. And so these are the steps that you need to get used to before you get that, go to the UK 3A championships. This is the Olympic trials. And back in the day, it was the first two past the posts, and then one spot was left over for somebody who could have done exceptional performances throughout the year. Well, I got the first two past the post. Got into the Olympic, got into the um, Olympic team, and then the rest is history. You know, then, then you know, all, all of so, all, so bear in mind that's 1977 to 1984. So you know, good six, seven, eight years of work and preparation. Of course, you know, I, I can't go for all the training sessions because you know you go from three sessions a week to six sessions a week to twelve sessions a week is the increment steps to get up to that sort of level. You know, they're not all eyeballs out, but you've got technique, strength, strength conditioning, endurance, speed endurance. So, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And it sounds like, like a chore, but it's not because you're sold out to it, Craig, and everybody that you know in your world is doing it. That's your life. That's your community. That's your group. That's your sustenance. We're all doing it. And they were absolutely phenomenal days. And then, of course... You won your first gold in 1986 um, in Stuttgart and then followed that up a year later um, with the silver at the World Championships in Rome. What was that feeling like when when you achieved that? Well, so I was was initially a quarter miler, 400 metres, flat runner. Mm -hmm. And 83 to 86... That's where my heart lied. Mm-hmm. 
then we had a couple of young guys, so not young, well, but Roger Black and Dave Redmond, who absolutely took the event in a British perspective to a whole new level. I mean, and I realised that my days as a quarter mile was numbered. The reason this is important, because when they say decisions define your destiny, yep. and there's been a series of decisions already that we talked about. But again, in, in 1986, I made another decision that was going to change on the 400 factor 400 hurdles. Purely because although I was slow, when I say slow, it's all relative. I could run 45.5 by now as a, as, a, as a flat 400. But Roger and Dirk were running 44 and a half. And although it's a second, a second is eight metres. So I was way out of their league. Or they were, you know, they were way above my league. So in changing to do the 400 hurdles and a whole new learning process, old dogs learned new tricks, I got a new lease of life. And so actually, 86 and 87, and I won um, a gold in the relay in 86 in the US, and a gold in the combo games in the, in the relay. I didn't win as an individual then. But that's really important because that was my last time when I really depended upon the 4 before team to get hardware. And I made that transition to top three in the world. Yep. And now I'm interested to top three in the world. And so, and so to answer your question, what did that feel like? It felt really rewarding. And I hope I'm not sounding like you know, I'm, I'm blowing smoke at my own backside. But it felt really rewarding to make a very crucial decision mm -hmm. and stick to it. Because I was a half decent quarter miler, but to be a world class 400 meter hurdler, I had to dare to let that all go. And no longer associate myself as a flat 400 meter runner and see myself identify as a 400 meter hurdler. And there's a 15 month period where I was trying new things, I was falling over hurdles, people were laughing at me. I was 28, they were mocking me, saying, What do you think you're doing? You're washed up. But I believed in myself and I surrounded myself with people who believed in me. And so that vindication to become a world-class hurdler, to win as an individual, and to be recognised, and we might go on to talk about my British records later on, it, 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 it was awesome, Craig, it's awesome. And, you know, and, and, and when we talk about football, I reckon it's probably the same for Bournemouth. If you, if you, if you were part of that Bournemouth group, who were on your chin strap, 17 points, going out of the league, little old Bournemouth, get out of the league, but you believed in it and you put in your mm -hmm. pennies in the bucket and you went and you did community work and, 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 and you backed the team and then you saw people coming in who were taking pay cuts and were buying into the ethos and you saw yourself come and now you're in a Premier League and, you're, and, 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 and you've, you've done a couple of yo-yos like we did at West Ham and then you're back in again and it looks like you're coming out again and then you get Gary O'Neill and he, and he backs you guys. What does that feel like, fellas? That's how it feels like. When you back yourself, you've got people that back you, and you believe in yourself even when the press and the world and others don't. What does that feel like, fellas? Well, how it feels like for you at Bournemouth is how it felt like for me back in the day. And it's, it's interesting you say that because, of course, minus 17, we gave the opportunity and backed somebody, Eddie Howe. Oh, Sir wow. Eddie Howe. 
and what a great manager he was. And, you know, he somebody believed in him and gave him that opportunity. And then, of course, he took repaid us by taking us up the leagues. Okay, yeah, he did go to Burnley and back, but we'll forget about that. Bit. <laughs> <laughs> he gives him a beast. Yeah. <laughs> but 1990, Chris, was a bit of a golden year for you as well, because it proved that he was right to actually make that transition to the hurdles as well. Um, you did win three gold medals that year. Um, I believe it was two in the hurdles, one in the relay, wasn't it? Um, yeah. No, no, I won four. It was two in the hurdles. We won the Commonwealth, I won the Commonwealth gold as, uh, for the hurdles and in the relay and the European gold. For the hurdles of the relay, I think, I think I, I don't know. I've got. I don't know. I think I think I won four medals that year, but but yeah. but 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 the, but the real piece of resistance was breaking David Henry's twenty-two-year-old British record. And Craig, I mean, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the youngsters who who, who watch this, they won't know Akabusi is. They won't mean anything to them. Um, but Craig, we've had a little bit about backstory. I remember Kesey Akabusi, who lived in the Jordan zone, mm-hmm. ten sheets to the wind during the army, and for me to go to split, to have made that decision in '86, to work my testicles off in '87, '88, to win a bronze, in I make the final in '87, to go to the Europeans in 1990. If I'd made the final, it'd have been enough. But in that race, when I crossed the line, great to win. And then I looked at the clock and it said 47, eight. no, 47, 92. Yeah. A- athletes, you remember your numbers. Yeah. <laughs> and David, David Henry, who had broken the British record in, in 1968, it was an Olympic record when he, because he was Olympic champion, mm-hmm. 48-12. Honestly. I was absolutely going through the track. <laughs> I was like a wailing banshee. I was just mad. And it still just, it still just fries my brain to think that I'm, because I'm still a British record holder, Craig. Now, now it will go, but it, will, but it will only go if somebody who's currently running the 400 and running 45 seconds or 44 decides to change. At the moment, we, at the moment, without being rude to the current contemporary hurdlers, we have people who hurdle in Britain who can't break forty-six for the flat four hundred. Well, you, you you cannot run my my time if you can't break forty-six. You've got to be able to run forty-five-five at least, and even that, I don't think is enough. So, so I'm pleased that I still hold a British record, but I, I will look forward to the day. I hope because you know, without being morbid. 20 years later, see Akabuzi. Who was he? What did he do? So, you know, I'm hoping still around to see somebody do it. Do you know what I mean? Because it'll yeah. be a pleasure to shake the hand of the guy that takes it to the future. And of course, in 1992, um, you did go to the Barcelona Olympics and um, had a great... And to be honest, this video is still out there today. The pictures are still out today. Um, it was a bronze medal in the end, wasn't it? Oh, but, yeah, yeah. It was a magnificent achievement because who was it you was up against? It Kevin was Young. So, so, Kevin so, Young, yes. Kevin Young, yeah. So, so, Kevin. so prior to that, in my day, you guys, you guys, I must say you guys, the contemporary generation, 
Well, I remember Usain Bolt. And Usain Bolt in 100 was superb and had, mm-hmm. had, it was peerless, right? Well, in my day in the front of the there was a guy called Ed Moses. And Ed Moses went 10 consecutive years, mm-hmm. 122 uh, races, finals, undefeated, and was peerless in the front of the hurdles. And then Edwin got beaten in 1988 for the first time in, in the Olympics and so And then there was a vacuum. And there's four years where, you know, Danny Harris, Matete, these are just names, what doesn't really matter, would have a go at being number one. Mm-hmm. Kevin Young was just like me and also ran. Without being rude, I'd make the finals, I scrapped to get on the podium, but I'm not going to win. I'm not going to be champion of the world as an individual. If you want to be, if you want to be champion of the world, you've got to beat me. You've got to get Kevin Young. We're going to make the final. We're going to be there. We're going to be in the conversation. But we're going to come three, four, five. Mm-hmm. So, Barcelona 92, I line up, I think I'm in lane four or five. And Kevin Young is lane three or four. And in athletics, the best athletes are lane three, four, five, and six. So, by me being in, in four, four, I think I was in four, I was one of the favourite athletes to get on the podium, but not, per se, not necessarily win it. I fly out of my blocks, round the first turn, and I'm just approaching hurdle three. Now, hurdle three is about 120 yards, 120 metres round the track. Yeah. Shoom! This guy blasts past me. On the inside lane, I'm thinking, I'm having a nightmare. I must have a wobble. I must have a virus. Something wrong. Anyway, I, I keep going. Hurdle five, hurdle seven. As a time up, hurdle seven, hurdle eight. Actually, it's only me and there's a Jamaican neck and neck. Young is down the track. Over hurdle 10, fight towards the line. And when I cross the line, look over there 46 72, new world record. 46 seconds. Mm. I actually put the British record again. 47.82, the record that stands today. I was eight metres behind the Olympic champion. That was it. I retired on that day. Because I knew at 34, there was no way of coming back. But that was it. Again, and this is something, you know, sometimes you can be performing and you, and it's easy to compare yourself amongst other people when actually you've got to compare yourself to the man and Matt. You've got to compare yourself with the man inside. And when, mm-hmm. when that's, that's a generic sense, the person is like male or female, you could compare yourself with your spirit inside. You've got to allow your inner man, the inner person, to talk to you. Because I could have easily given up. It would have been easy down the back straight. She said, Oh, I'm having a nightmare. I'm not very well. And then I knock over her to four or five and say, I'm out. Because that's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. He blew past, but he was on a different time frame. He was at world record pace, I was at British record pace. And and, 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 and and it can happen to all of us again. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Picture the scene. All of your mates around, you've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. You're back to that time when we talked about Bournemouth when they played Liverpool. Yeah. At some stage, those players gave up. Yeah. Because Liverpool were at world record pace. Mm-hmm. When Bournemouth should have stayed at Bournemouth pace. Because, okay, you might have lost two or three. You didn't need to lose nine. Yeah. Because that nine must have been a psychological blow and a hurdle to get over the rest of that season. You made it and you did do it. Yeah. You got back to Bournemouth pace. The man and the spirit inside. That's a lesson to us all. Are you gutted that you did retire at that point, or was you happy that you retired on a high, you know, on the podium? Um, and you know, do you feel that if you had continued past that point, that it might have been that you wouldn't have gone out on that with that feeling? Yeah, look, Craig, uh, one of my favorite philosophers is a guy called Friedrich Nietzsche. Got lots and lots of lovely sayings. Um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But one of these sentences that I like is die at the right time. Mm-hmm. Some die too early. If I'd locked, if I'd knocked over the hurdle and jumped out, they'd been too early. Some die too late. They hang on, they've got excuses for why they're not performing. It's always about the wind or the track or the clothes or the virus. And they end up being petered and knocked out. Mm-hmm. You need to die at the right time. You need to call it a day at the right time. And in my case, I died right at the top. Oh, okay. Adrian, not Adrian Moses. Kevin Young did retire me. But I was still number one in the UK. I was still number one in Europe. I was still the British record holder. I'll still been getting I'll still get invites to race at the top races around the world. But when I called it a day, has that door closed? The whole world of entertainment opened. Yeah. TV opportunities, endorsement opportunities. When I say the word celebrity, I'm not saying I'm a grand grand for March, but you know, the notoriety of being a notable person who gets invited to do things. All those things opened up because I died at the right time. 
You, 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 your contact book was large. Come and do this, come and do yeah. that. Invited to dinners, invited, invited on TV shows, Big Breakfast, uh, Wogan Show, which is a big, uh, Jonathan Ross, you know, and I was fated because I died at the right time. Yeah, most definitely. And of course, something else you was invited to was to meet Her Majesty the Queen um, yeah. to receive your MBE. That was in 1991, wasn't it? Do you it was, remember the conversation? Yes, I very, very much, very much. So I was training, um, I was training in uh, California. I was European champion, mm -hmm. getting ready for the world championships. And I get a phone call from the prime minister's office, a guy called John Major. Mm -hmm. Hello, this is the uh, parliamentary undersecretary uh, calling from the prime minister's office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice one, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I put the phone down. Mr. Akabuthi. For the Prime Minister's office. Look, okay, mate. Yeah, yeah. Nice one. Okay. What do you really want? Prime Minister's office. Yeah, yeah. This is one of the more. We're putting you forward for an MBA, but we need to know whether it would be acceptable to put you forward to an MBA because I don't want people to put fingers up. I said, look, 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 mate. Nice one. If you are doing it, yeah, count me in. Uh, but yeah, thanks very much. Great laugh, Kuching. And then I'll get the letter and I go down and I see the Queen in, in, in 1992. <laughs> and it was just amazing. It was just amazing to think that me, Akabusi, soldier, kid from the children's home, was going to see a Majesty the Queen and become an honorable member of the British Empire. Because I am a royalist. I am fiercely British. I'm very proud to represent my country uh, in, in track of athletics. And, for the, and the Queen was just amazing. When you go and see the Queen, you you go up, or you're seen in batches of 10. Yeah. And you know, there's a long line of people, and she's walking up the line. And when she comes to me, she knew I'd been in children's home. She knew I was a soldier. She, so she asked me three or four pertinent questions. Now, of course, clearly, in the brief batches of 10, she was getting briefed about what's the next 10. But then she gets on to the next 10. And when she comes to you, I mean, she's spoken to sort of 40 other people. She's coming to you. Why would you know me? Okay, she doesn't know me, but, but she did know me there. And so it was a real honour and a privilege to stand in front of our Queen and have a talk to you a little bit about your life and your and your role in the realm. So it was a fantastic day. My children, my children were disappointed though because they were up there in the bleachers looking down and it was in Buckingham Palace, and the Queen was in a green smock, and she had a green lime green hat on and a little uh, sort of net thing, um, and they were looking for the tiara. Where's the tiara? <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great day for us all to go to Buckingham first. It was fantastic. Great. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. And massive congratulations on that. You know, it must have been such an honour. Where does that rank with regards to your achievements on the track? Would you say that that... No, it's what I, it's, it, yeah, I mean, I'm very proud of my achievements on the track. <laughs> uh, you know, European champions is it. But that's, that's it, you know. There are 60-odd million people in this country. Yeah. 
60 odd million. I was born in 1958. I'm a member of the British Empire. <laughs> that's a massive honor. That's a massive honor because, and, and, and can never be taken. My records will go. My records will go. But I will always be on a scroll as an MBE. No, no one's ever going to scroll through it. But in 100 years' time, my great great grandchildren will say, Oh, yeah, our old man, he was, he was Chris Ackerman, he was MBE. Yeah, yeah. He ran for his country and he's a member of the British Empire. It'll be, it'll, it'll be in the family forever. Yeah. Definitely. That, that means a lot to me. Most definitely, and it should do. It should do, Chris. It's, you know, great honour. And like I say, massive congratulations on that. Let's go on to your TV career, though, because, of course, I remember you very well from Record Breakers. And how did that come about? <laughs> well, this is the same, you know, about dying at the right time. See, um, athletics back then had a much bigger profile than it has today. We only had four TV channels back in the day. So yes. you had two BBC, ITV and Channel 4. And every Friday night was athletics night. So you'd, you'd begin to see athletes like myself coming up the ranks. And you'd, you'd get to follow us as we, stopped, as we, as, as we began to move on. And then, so Friday night was Friday night for athletics. And then, you know, they began to show on a Saturday and Sunday races abroad. Mm-hmm. So, you know, larger than life personality, this great big laugh. I was once introduced to Chris Akabusi, the guy with the gregarious laugh, which is very hard to ignore, but well worth the effort. So, you know, I've got this great big laugh that can be really annoying. So, but, but people began to, to sort of take a shot. You know, it's like Marmite. You either mm-hmm. like his energy, that's me, you either like my energy and my enthusiasm and my laugh, or you go, turn it off. Well, the people who turn it off, they turn it off, they don't know who I am. That's, they don't watch me. But many, many people used to like my energy and my enthusiasm. And so that's how it happened. I got invited as a guest on, 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 on Record Breakers, had a good old laugh, and then Greg Charles, who was a producer, said, Chris, um, would you like to do some guest presenting with us? I said, absolutely, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I'd go down there, do some records. I was a record breaker myself, go down there and do some guest presenting. And, and, and that's how it happened. And, and, and then, unfortunately, because um, it was, the show that we had a, well, I'm talking past tense, so you can tell. But Roy Castle was the flagship of Record Breakers, and Roy yeah. Castle was the last of the Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt. So singing, dancing, instruments, magic. He could do. He could. He could do everything that an antenna is supposed to do. Tap dancing, everything. He got cancer from working in the clubs and mm. bars and, and taking secondary smoke. And so he um, unfortunately passed away in the mid '90s. And so then I got, uh, you know, an unfortunate. I mean, it's fortunate for me, but unfortunate, you know. I then got became a regular presenter for Record Breakers, and I had a great six or seven years as a Record Breakers presenter and all over the world doing weird and wonderful records with Shell Baker. It was fantastic. I mean, to be fair, I was her assistant because she was the professional. She'd had sort of ten years with Roy prior to me coming along. And I could just do what's called the colour bit, you know, the energy, the enthusiasm, the surprise, the surprise visits, you know, and just really try to connect with the audience as them that are there. Yeah, so you've got the professional presenter, then you've got me being there going, wow, check this out, oh my God. Yes, you know, you know, and trying to replicate you being there, which is the idea. So it was, it was a fabulous time at Record Breakers. I loved it. 
yeah definitely definitely and honestly i remember the energy that you just brought to that program it was brilliant yeah it was brilliant yeah. that's what it's all about tv and i think well, yeah, what I mean, exactly especially as you think that you know record breakers was a show that predominantly was for the the demographic 10 to 14. you get a couple of kids younger couple of people that are older, but the predominant grab is 10 to 14. Grab all of these youngsters when, they, when they're coming home to be all inspired of the wonders of the world. The, you know, the, the virtuosity, the strength and ingenuity of the human mind, the human body. Look, look at all of these records that mankind, humanity is able to do. You want to grab kids, young people, 10 to 14 while they're young, so that they can go on and do the fun, do those things themselves. So, but you need to engage them. They need yeah. to want to sit down when they're eating their tea and watch it, or or prepare, well, mum's preparing tea, to watch it and go, yes, I want to do my own record. I want to do my mm -hmm. own thing, because we did weird and wacky things, you know, cow fat throwing, cow pat throwing contests, <laughs> death slides, <laughs> you know, dancing dollies, dancing dollies on a, on a, um, Water, sur water surfing, just all sorts of records. So it's it's possible to find your own unique niche. Was one of the com was one of the things we're trying to to communicate. You are unique, special, wonderfully made, and you can find your own unique niche in this world and become a champion. It was a great idea. Yeah, most definitely. And of course, he was on Question of Sport as well. Uh, they think it's all over. The Big Breakfast. Any favourite shows that you did? Um, I always loved, I always loved quiz shows and game shows, mm -hmm. uh, not because I was any good at the general knowledge, but could have a good old laugh and didn't really matter. You know, I've always been happy to make, I'll say make a fool of myself. What I mean is I've never, I, I don't take myself too seriously. Mm -hmm. So, so because a lot of people take themselves seriously and good luck to you. Well, we're here today and we're gone tomorrow. And life is to be enjoyed, not to be endured. And I don't want to set myself up to be anything other than I am, which is a, which is a being experiencing itself in the here and now. That's me. I am a being, an entity, a vibrant personality experiencing the joy of the world in the here and now. And one day the lights go off. And so I, everything I've done, I've done with joy and verve and just engage with the here and now enjoy the people that are in your circumference yeah because it's a miracle for example you Craig, i don't know you from adam and yet all of a sudden i've got an hour with craig exactly. and a multiplied multiplied thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands that will be watching our thing later on and this, this is it this is life this is yeah. it and so so I've, I've, anything, anything that allows me just to have fun, engage, have a laugh, don't take myself too seriously. Nobody died because I got the offer wrong. I want to be doing open heart surgery. I'll get it wrong and kill somebody. That wouldn't be fun. So, you know, I, mean? I want to do things yeah. that are fun, engaging, happy, that make people temporarily, temporarily get out of the minutiae of life and enjoy themselves. So anything, quiz shows, game shows. Um, lots of the, you know, like say Jonathan Ross and Wogan shows where you've been interviewed, this sort of thing. It's great yeah. fun. It's great fun. No one's going to die here. No one's going to die. 
So you, you know, I might say something that 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 inspires you or gets you thinking, mm-hmm. or I might say something that nothing is just oh well that's okay yeah, but doesn't matter. No one's gonna die. We're just here enjoying yeah. each other's company. So nice. I was there was one show I did Mrs. Merton, and when I went up to do the show, I was in a taxi. And they said, said what, are you, what are you doing, mate? Because she was, was being recorded in Manchester. Oh, I'm on a Mrs. Merton show. Because she, she was just coming. She was, she was well known in Manchester because her show was on the, in that area. But mm-hmm. she was just creating shows for the national programme. Where are you going, mate? On Mrs. Merton. Oh, you're going to enjoy that. Well, she's got great northern humour. I didn't have a clue what they meant. Oh, don't you worry. She's got great northern humour. Well, I was on the show when... There's a woman called Debbie McGee, and Debbie McGee was married to a guy called Paul Daniels. And Paul Daniels is a magician, and Debbie McGee goes, oh, no, no. Mrs. Burke goes, oh, Debbie, you're nice. What are you, are you so young? What first attracted you to the multimillionaire Paul Daniels? Because <laughs> Paul, talented, but wasn't. The best looker in the world, and she absolutely came Denny McGee. And there's some other things, but it was all great, it's all good fun. But you know, I loved that. I mean, I love that sort of show, that sort of wit where nobody and Debbie was fantastic. I mean, you know, just don't take yourself too seriously, mate. Life is too short, yeah. Love that, completely, completely agree. Um, of course, you are a motivational speaker now, and of course, I'm, I'm in sales myself. Um, you know, selling solutions to companies. But what would be the best advice you would give to teams that are struggling to achieve their goals? Well, I mean, goals, goal setters, that's, a, that's a, what are the goals? Mm-hmm. Um, is the talent there mm-hmm. to achieve those goals? What are the support systems? And the resources that are supporting the individuals to achieve those goals. Yeah. Are the reward systems in place that incentivize us all to achieve our goal? So, for example, in athletics, yeah. the reason in athletics, um, the athlete, first of all, the athlete has absolute clarity mm-hmm. of what the goal is. I need to do this time. At this time, so I need to do this. So the time I need to run, let's say I need to, be able to run 47.8 by August the 5th, 1990. And in order to do that, we work back from my goals. I need a right physio, I need a right training partner, I need a right agent, I need the right management, I need the right races, I need the right, yeah. So you need the right support systems. Yeah. And, none, and, 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 and we all, sure that we're so keyed into this that at the end of the day, August the 5th, if he, Akibuchi, does that, we all get to eat. Mm-hmm. Now, often in businesses, you've got you, the sales guys, yeah. who are highly incentivized. Mm-hmm. You hit your target. You get your double-digit growth and your bonuses. But your, 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 your PA or your filing clerk or your um, technical support team get nothing. Well, 
what, what, what? Then, then the incentives are not there. We've, we've all got to eat when you hit your numbers. So, so, so there's so many questions that are need to be asked. I once went to a conference, a million dollar conference, mm-hmm. where the chief executive walked to the stage, they opened up, opened up a case, there's a million dollars to be shared with the sales force if they hit their targets. Great. So the 20 sales team were really happy because they got a million dollars to, sh- to, to, to share. But all the rest of the team, marketing, HR, finance, operations, IT, we said, okay, that's great. What about us? So you, so you incentivize the sales force with that million, but you demotivate everybody else. So, 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 so that's. I'm sorry, I don't think I've really answered the question, but I've answered it by not answering it. You've got to ask a whole lot of questions around what's supporting that goal. What is it? What do we have to do to get there? How do we get? How do we get our medal around our chest if we get that? And of yeah. course, I, I'm talking about money, uh, but 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 money is not everyone's goal. You know, mm-hmm. somebody might say, "I want more time." My incentive is, okay, if we do that, do I get off? Do I, you know, can I work from home two days a week? Mm-hmm. Or um, you know, am I guaranteed a five-year contract? Because I, I, I need this job for the next five years because I've got a child going through school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I've got to pay my mortgage. So another thing, we talk about goals. What is the motives for the actions of the people in your team? Yeah, You've got to find out individual motives for me being there. For some people, it's just having a name on the board. Chief Operating Officer. Quiet zone. Room with a view. Leave me alone. So yeah, my goal is if we see that, will you give me my own office in a corner that no one bugs me so I can do all of my all of my all of my detail, detail, detail. Detail, facts of data, 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 analysis, analysis. Don't talk to me. I'm not in. That's my mo- That's what motivates me. Yeah. Leave me alone. So, so, Craig, it sounds like a simple question, but there's so many layers. Right? In this, when, when I do my motivational speaking, though, I'm a storyteller, and I'll tell stories that will amplify some of these things. So I don't, I don't really like to preach to people. I allow that to pick up nuggets out of the stories that I tell. But as I said to you there, if you say about goal setting, it's a very simple question, but many, many layers underneath it. Of course, definitely. No, that was really, really insightful as well for me. Um, and, you know, I'd love to come to a conference where you're speaking as well. Oh, bless you, mate. I, I honestly would do, would do. Um, going back to, of course, West Ham. Um, yes. Of course, they won something last year. They won the Europa Conference League. Yes. Now, you know, basing it on what you've already said to me, where do they go from here? What what do they need to achieve? What is going to be that goal? What what really is going to be the aim? So, so great. That was a great day. A great day in the sun. I mean, I'm old enough to remember 75 FA Cup. I was there. 75 FA Cup. Foot against Fulham, 2-0. Alan Taylor, bam, bam. What a player. Arsenal, 1980. I was there. Booking, head up, get in there. 1986, boys of 86. 
third in the English English League. I was there. So I've seen West Ham have success, but it is spurtwodic. Mm-hmm. West Ham is not a team where you support if you want glory. That, that's just not us. I've seen us relegated. I've seen us promoted. I've seen us be defeated in the FA Cup final. But, so, as a West Ham fan, mm-hmm. if last year is the only win I see for the next 20 years before I shuffle off the football call, Right now, we are in turmoil. We're going to play you in two days' time. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you who's our team going to be. We've lost, we don't like to call his name, our boss, Declan Rice. Yes. What a phenomenal player he was for us. Mm-hmm. Number 41. He's done absolutely amazing. You know, barely puts a foot wrong. He's now gone to Arsenal. I, I do wish him well. Many Most of West Ham fans don't, but I do wish him well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's new. But it's, it's going to be a lot harder for him there because with us, he grew through the ranks and he was ahead of Champions above everybody. An excellent player. We've lost him. We've lost Gamaka, a striker who, if we had played him in his right position, would have scored us 20 goals. He's gone. Right now, as I speak, I don't even know, but Man City are interested in our glorious Brazilian Paqueta. I don't think, for example, I'll be surprised if Paqueta plays for us against you on Saturday. If he plays for us against you on Saturday, he's going nowhere. If he doesn't play for us against you on Saturday, he's gone. And Paqueta is one of those I know I can't say once in a lifetime because we had we had Dimitri Payet as well. But you know, every now and again you get a player who comes to your club and he you, he's out of your seat material. You can be having a stinker. Last year we were all for the Premier League. But when he got on the ball at some stage in the, in that game, he's gonna do something that's gonna oh my gosh, did he just do that? Did we just we well and, 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 you know, as a West Ham fan, that's why you go to the game. You don't yeah. go because you're going to win. Every now and again, you might beat Bournemouth, you might beat Liverpool. But more often than not, you're going to lose more games in the season than you're going to win. And you just hope you draw enough to stay up. Now, yeah. I know the last two years we've had six and seven. No, not last year. Last year we just had but the two previous years, six and seven. But there's, there's, there's reasons for that. You asked me what we're going to do this year. Well, we've got to sort ourselves out. A manager has gone and got players he's looking for. He's got Maguire. He's got George, um, James Ward-Prowse. We've got Alvarez. A very defensive team. Big hoofing team. Set-piece team. As a West Ham fan, it's a, it's a watch and wait brief. I'm not particularly excited about it. It's the first... Normally, uh, when the season starts, I'm absolutely buzzing. Can't wait for the season. I've been looking at you guys, what are they like, who they got. I'll be on the blows with my yeah. mates going down there. I'll be optimistic. I'll be thinking, you know, it's like fearing we're going to get turned over. But I hope we come away with the three points. What a gig that was. I'm, I'm, I'm non-plus. I will just watch what happens. If we get kicked in the ghoulies, excuse my language, if we get kicked in the ghoulies, told you. If you win, well, that's interesting. It's going to take, I think it's going to take the window closing, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the window closing, 
half a dozen games to see where we are, to get me buzzing about West Ham, assuming we pick up enough points to be outside the bottom three. Now, you don't want to be going into a season already thinking about the bottom three. Mm -hmm. Normally, I'm pie in the sky thinking this is the year we'll be smashing at the top six, getting at the top four Champions League. Shut up, Kabuse, yeah. you're dreaming. What's wrong with dreaming? But right now, I'm just hoping we're not in the bottom three. I'm sure you'll be fine, Chris. I'm sure you'll be fine this season. Yeah, I'm absolutely <laughs> sure. I'm sure you're going to be fine, mate. <laughs> really? Why, okay, tell, why, why do you think we're going to be fine? What makes you think that? I think David Moyes will get it together. Do you? Yeah, I think David Moyes is a good coach. Yes. Um, but I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of change. Declan Rice is a difficult person to replace. Yeah. Of course. But um, I think... West Ham will get it together. Maybe not straight away, but slowly but surely, I think. So, Craig, we're coming to your manor on Saturday. Yes. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. Go on. We're coming to your manor on Saturday. Mm -hmm. What are you expecting? I'll be honest. I think because of the new manager bounce that we're going to get, um, the players that we brought in, Justin Clivert, Milos Kerkes, now Alex Scott as well, um, Max Aarons is meant to be on. Is, is that kid from Bristol City? He is, yes. Wow, you got him with you. Yeah, yep. It was. I mean, announced that everyone says it. I mean, he's a real deal, and it's going to be you know top top bins within a yes. couple of years. Yeah, believe it wow. or not, he was actually here years and years and years ago. So he was up in the Southampton Academy, and then he did spend some time with the football club. Wow. Because, see, he was offered to us, but David Moyes wouldn't guarantee him any football. And I can see with you, he'll get football. Mm. Wow. Okay, sorry, I butted in. Great. So, you've got all these new players and West Ham walking up at your manor. Tell me what you're thinking. I'm thinking... New manager bounce. Yeah, I think a new manager bounce. I think three points. Um, sorry, Chris, but, I, you no, know, no, that's, no. What, that's what I honestly think. I think we're going to get the three points because... Um, you know, the players we bought in, you know, it all seems to be coming together. And against Lorient in our final preseason game, all the players seem to be knowing what they're... And Iriola plays quite high-intensity football. You know, I completely agree with you on Gary O'Neill. You know, I was surprised he was sacked. You know, if, say, for example, another manager had come in, and I know he's former West Ham, but Frank Lampard come in or Steven Gerrard... Um, or Jesse Marsh come in, I'd be a bit disappointed with that. But Iriola, what he's basically done in Spain is taken this team, Rayo Bellicano, who are very unfashionable, very much like ourselves. He managed to get them right up the league, has beaten Barcelona and Real Madrid, get them into the Champions League places. Okay, didn't finish there, you know, dropped back. He never probably expected that. But at the same time, it's like getting Luton into those positions and keeping Luton safe. Now, if Rob Edwards does that two seasons in a row, you know, everybody will be raving about him. Absolutely. And saying, what can he do next? The big challenge now for him is he's now at a club which we're still unfashionable. AFC Bournemouth is still an unfash unfashionable club. But what is the challenge is we're an unfashionable club with money. And I think 
that's what's going to be exciting, you know, for us this season. And I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I think, you know, we can, I can't imagine Europe, but I think we could probably get into, you know, the top, top of the bottom half. I would be happy with that. You know, 11th place this season, you know, Chris, I think. And then build on that. Like we've been saying throughout this interview, you know, build on that. You know, go from, right, OK, we finished there. Now what do we do to take the next step to achieve our goals? So, so great. So, so, so right, so, so you've said West Ham are coming to town. Yep. New manager bounce. New influx of players. You're expecting three points. Yep. And that's good. Now, if I tell you, in our first six games, we're playing Bournemouth, not in no particular order, mm-hmm. Bournemouth and Luton. If we're going to get anything, Bournemouth and Luton. Yeah. Man City, Chelsea, Liverpool, Brighton. We'd never get anything from Brighton. If you take three points from us, and we play those, team, those two teams, it's potentially end of September mm-hmm. if you take those three points. Might only have one, two, or three points, assuming we can do something against Luton. Yeah. Now, 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 Craig. If what you say comes true, we are in big, big doodles. That is why, as a West Ham fan, mm-hmm. I'm not excited about the season. Now, I don't think you'll take three points. I think we'll get a very scrappy draw. I think that you may be leading and that you may be, you know, we might do a set piece against you. I don't see yeah. I don't see us creating anything from open play. I see us being, you know, trying to be spoiling and getting men behind the ball and defending a nil-nil lead. Because nil-nil is leading for us. Yeah. Nil-nil lead at 60 minutes. You breaking our hearts with 15 minutes to go. And then that's doing a set piece. I'm, you know, and getting a one, and that'll be our first point. And then I think Luton is, I think it's three or four weeks down the road before we get our next points. We get spanked at Chelsea. Our, fir- our first home game, let's say, our first home game is Chelsea. So we get spanked there. Anyway, my point being, Craig, yeah. is I'm speaking to Craig, mm-hmm. and he goes, you know what, mate? All due respect, I fancy it against you. Three points. That tells you where we are in the face mm-hmm. of the rest of the league. Because if I'm, because if, if I was Liverpool, Chelsea, uh, I'm not Brighton. You'd be going, oh well, yeah, opening game of season. Yeah, Brighton, you, you know, get a draw there. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's the first game. Not quite sure. We're bedding in. Blah blah blah. Now nah, West Ham. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to get a few points there. That's what I mean, Craig. Yeah, it's all well and good talking about. Yeah, we've got a nice manager like him, done really well, steady guy. But when you sit there and say, yeah, we'll get three points, points there, that tells you where we're really at. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's okay because, because what you said, Craig, is what I think a lot of us at West Ham feel. I'm not sitting there thinking new manager bounce, new players in. Um, no, I'm not thinking that. I'm thinking we've got new players in, but they're not bedded in. They're not training with a team. We've had six weeks of a window. 
got nobody in. So who are we going to rely on? We're the oldest team in the league. We haven't got anybody up front. We've lost our striker. We're going to have one striker. Antonio doesn't want to be here. He could be gone by the time he goes out. I'm not quite sure. Okay, we've got a junior, Wombana. He's never played in the Premier League before. We'll put him in there. We'll isolate him. Nobody anywhere near him. He'd be like running around like a headless chicken. Oh, don't worry about that. Our flair players, or oh, Paqueta, he's not going to be playing. Okay, so what are we going to do now? Oh, I know what we'll do. We'll have nine defenders. That's what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, oh, we can't play Alvarez. He's new, but he's, he's, not, he's been on holiday. We could play. I know we've got JWP. He's played already for Southampton in the in the National League, so we can we can bung him in. Yeah, okay. Maguire can be on the bench. Okay, so what's about? I don't know. So so mm. I, I I I don't know if I'm typical of the West Ham fan base, but my little echo chamber, that's where that's what we're like. We're sitting here, two days away from the thing, scrambling around to get players in while we're shipping players out. And we're going to Bournemouth. And I will, I've got my fingers crossed and anything mm-hmm. else for a point. Because if we don't get a point against you, we are up the street with the doo-doos in our hands. Chris, if you was the West Ham manager with this fixture coming up, what would you say to the team? If I was the West Ham manager, what would I say? I would say Bournemouth, great club, um, family atmosphere. But if you don't win this, if you don't win this one, what are you what are you gonna win? Mm-hmm. Go there, impose yourself, work as hard as they will work. And hope, because I can't see it's being creative, hope for a set piece that quietens the, quietens the crowd early. Fair enough. Fair enough. Final question, Chris, yeah. um, because I, I've had you on for more than an hour. I'll tell you what, you, you did say earlier on um, about <laughs> <laughs> you got an hour with me, you got an hour and 15 yeah. or an hour 20 with me, because yeah. I yeah. absolutely love this conversation. It's great. What, does the future hold for Chris Akabusi? Would you return to TV presenting as well? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. No, no. I, I, I have an absolute amazing gig, Craig. I'm mm. loving my life. I've had a great gig. The future, um, I will always work. I'll, I'll get, you know, so I do get employed. I'll always work as a professional speaker. But my golf, I love my golf. Um, I want to get better at golf. I've got, I've got down. I'm, I'm 15 at the moment. I've got, I've got down to 11 this year. I hope to get back to 11 before the end of the year. I've got kids. And I've got grandkids. I'm loving watching them grow and see their their personality develop. Um, I don't want. I, I don't ask for anything big, Craig. I, you know, I'm I'm really really happy with my life. I tell you what, the future holds. I want to for another 20 years. I'm 64. Get to 84. See my kids. See my grandkids. Enjoy my golf and be able to say, it sounds a bit morbid, but I'm not scared of death, but be able to say in my bed, I lived a good, full and fruitful life. See you kids, I'm checking out. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Enjoying yeah. life for yes. every day. Absolutely, every day. It's not just a hurdle. It's not just a hustle. Enjoy it. And, 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 and you're not on your own. So... Enjoy the life with the people that are in your life. I know, you know, in, in a social media age, 
and the telecommunication age, we hear about war in Iraq and we see about famine in Ethiopia and we, all of those sorts of things. And, 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 and it's, it's great to be aware. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But I've been blessed to live in the United Kingdom with a few bob in my pocket, food on my table, clothes on my back, and people in my life. There's a guy called Voltaire. Voltaire wrote a book called Candide. And Candide was about a chap who travels the world trying to find the best of all possible worlds. And he sees war, pestilence, disease. And he comes back to his own house. And he comes back as if he'd never left before. And he finally realizes the only thing you can do in life is to tend your garden. And to tend your garden for me means to be attentive to the people that are in your life. Yeah. The things that are in your life, the things that go past your face in your life, and breathe and have your being in this one and only beautiful life. I've had 64 amazing years. Pray for another 20. I'm checking out here. Chris, honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I've absolutely loved, honestly, I've loved every moment of this. Oh, bless and you, Greg. All the very, very best to whatever you put your hand to in the future. Um, and yeah, I'm sure whatever you do, you're going to be a success. You're, you're a winner. You're a champion, aren't you? Thank you very much, Craig. Thank you very much. And all I can say is on, on Saturday, I'll be happy with 1-1. One, one, but notice, Craig, if you take all three points, my chin is going to hit the floor. Craig, Craig, right, he got it right. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much, mate. Thank it's you, been brother. An absolute pleasure. Mate. Have a good thank one. Thank you. And you as well. Yeah. Take care. And thank you, everybody, for joining us on this show. Please hit the like, the subscribe, the bell button below to be alerted to any new videos we do here on Up the Cherries and all departments. Please also do check out our recent interviews with regards to the West Ham game. We've had Ian Dale on, and we've also had Matt's head-to-head -head show with Russ from West Ham Network. We've also had lots of other interviews as well. Joe Partinson's been on, Joe Roach. Of course, we had Fletch on. And, of course, Steve Cook, who's recently joined QPR as well. So do check it out and make sure you let us know what you like. But until the next show, thank you for joining us and we'll see you then. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hold up. 